Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babak Hayeri. Hello, everybody. This is the College Football Survivor Show, where we go deep into the chase for the College Football Playoff Championship. I'm Bob Akairi, and I'm joined by the exceptional Shehan Jayaraja, National College Football Writer for CBS Sports. You can find us on X at CFB Survivor Show, where you can participate in polls, see highlights of the show with our lovely faces, and send us feedback. We always appreciate it when you take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe our show. Reviews always help people find us. So the season's calmed down. Army-Navy and the Heisman Trophy ceremony were this past weekend. But in that lull, that calm before the storm of bulls that fill the latter half of this month, we here at the College Football Survivor Show are concerned with a pair of playoff games coming up on January 1st, with maybe some passing interest in the game happening in the Orange Bowls a couple of days before. For this show, we're going to take a little bit of a moment to talk about some of the biggest questions that will define this year's college football playoff. But before we get started, Shehan, I just want to say, is it nice for you, especially because I know you have a very intense schedule with CBS Sports, to just get that opportunity to kind of have a slight breather before we jump into bowl season? Oh, man, this is great. This is like a great time of year because there's still stuff ahead. There's still lots to enjoy. But this past Saturday, obviously, I watched Army Navy and and all that. But this was my first Saturday without college football, uh, like working it since I think it's like August 28th or something. Like it has been a long, long season about this time of year is about the time I'm like, all right, let's do one or two games a day. We don't need to do 15, 30, 40, 50 games a day at this point. Uh, there's still good stuff on, right? There's still FCS playoffs. There's still D2, D3. Uh, there's playoff games ahead. There's bowl games ahead. But I don't have to watch them right now. And uh, even for somebody who loves college football as much as I do, whew, it was nice to just uh, this weekend we drove down to Austin. We visited a friend. Like we we did normal like couple weekend stuff. It was great. I know what you mean. I woke up on Saturday and I'm like, wow, I can actually kind of not panic about, oh, have we, you know, <laughs> what happened in game day? Oh my gosh, or what's what's the new story of the morning? You know, it was, yeah, exactly. It was relaxing. Um, just one college football game to worry about. Then we got to see the who won the Heisman, which we kind of all knew, but it was nice to sort of have that formality taken care of and, and you know, take a breather, take, a, take it all in, you know, watch what's happening in the portal, watch what's happening in the coaching searches. And move on. I got to say, though, the one thing I still can't believe North Dakota State's head coach is now going to be the linebacker coach at USC. Like I as someone who went to USC, to me, it's like, gosh, fulfill the, the, the rich stereotype. Like, we'll just buy a linebacker coach, you know, the head coach of North Dakota State. But we'll talk about that more maybe in the offseason, talking about coaching moves. But it's been entertaining. And again, it's relaxing. But now it's a good time to sort of reset and start thinking about these two playoff games. We've got the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl 
back to back, January 1st. Great matchups. You know, we've, we've said all we've said about who got to be in the four matchups, but the bottom line is we've got four great teams. So what we're going to do is kind of go through some of the, oh, the 10 biggest questions that we have for these semifinal games. And I'll, I'll pass it off to you, Shehan. What's one of the questions you have going into this? So let's start with this. I think that when you look at this Alabama-Michigan game, it's hard not to ask one specific question. Michigan has had the two-time Joe Moore award-winning offensive line. This year's unit hasn't been as good. So my first pressing question, one that might define the entire playoff, to be honest, can Michigan's offensive line actually hang against the elite teams, especially Alabama, but I'd also point out Texas. I'd also point out the way Washington's playing right now. We've seen the last two years, once they've gotten to this stage, what's really good in the Big Ten is not the same thing as being good playing against SEC or even Big 12 teams in the past couple of years. So that's my first question. Can Michigan's offensive line hang? What do you think? You know, I think we've got an interesting kind of point here. And you brought in one of the thoughts I had is like they're no longer in conference play. So now we're going to see how these teams kind of stack up against each other outside. And one of the things, especially we're looking at the Michigan offensive line, they've already faced several top 10 defenses. We saw how they did, you know, very short order, relatively speaking, against Penn State, Ohio State, and of course, Iowa in that title game. And they've managed to keep J.J. McCarthy safe enough to make good decisions. Not necessarily the great decisions. He wasn't in the Heisman race for good reason, but he was able to make those decisions that allowed him to keep the offense moving and more importantly, not turn the ball over too much. So I think against this Alabama defense, and, and it is a strong defense, I don't think it's going to be anything out of the ordinary of what the Wolverines have faced. And they do have a major injury, and, and replacing Zinter has been a problem. And, and against Iowa, we started to see that, you know, work sufficiently. But I think as an overall unit, the offensive line for Michigan has been, will be able to at least keep the, keep the ball moving and keep uh, J.J. McCarthy from being overwhelmed. That's my initial impression. I worry because of the last two games, right? Against Ohio State, they averaged four yards per carry uh, and struggled a little bit more after Zach Zinter went out, like you mentioned. And then in their first game, where they don't have Zach Zinter playing against Iowa, their offense was a disaster. It got covered up because Florida State had an even worse day offensively, although Florida State actually had more yards against uh, Louisville than Michigan had against Iowa. But Iowa held them to 1.9 yards per carry, 66 total rushing yards. And then I think you throw on top of that, this is not the same Donovan Edwards that we got the last, uh, the last year. And I'm legitimately concerned. And that doesn't even get into the idea of them being able to get pressure with Dallas Turner. That doesn't even get, you know, factor that in with Chris Braswell. This Michigan offensive line has not been able to hang once they've played athletes. They're, in the Big Ten, you get big guys on the defensive line. In the SEC, you get big guys who can move. Chris Braswell is bigger, as big as anybody in the Big Ten, and he's going to run a 4-6 at, at the NFL Combine, right? It is a different animal when you are playing that level of opponent. And 
we even saw last year from a communication perspective, right? TCU doesn't necessarily have the five-star athletes on the defensive line, but they attacked from different angles and Michigan was confused as heck. So I'm very concerned. That's probably the biggest reason that I don't know whether Michigan can actually beat Alabama and win the national title. But at the same time, if they show up and they mow down Alabama's offense or defensive line, which is absolutely on the table, then that changes everything. With that said, what you is... Know, you bring up a great point. Well, I just wanted to add to that because, I mean, Kevin Steele has certainly watched those games, you know, as defensive line coach for Alabama. And he has seen how they've kind of struggled in that in that spot to, to make up for Zinter. So uh, we're going to be, we're probably going to see how well and a well-prepared Alabama team can exploit a weakness in an opponent. And that is a, a terrifying statement for any team is, that has gone up for them. But at the same time, we'll see, again, we're, and I think it's going to have to do with the totality of that offense and how well they can kind of balance it out. And perhaps that ability of, of Michigan to win ugly, because that's certainly what has helped them out, is that ability to win ugly will probably be what will be their, their way past that kind of a weak spot. You know, I wanted to also, tra- this kind of brings up one or the other. The question I had was actually the reverse of that is how Alabama can handle Michigan's front seven, because this is going to be a battle of two very good defensive groups. And with defensive line starters like, you know, uh, Chris Jenkins, Kenneth Grant, Mason Graham, um, Braden McGregor, Jalen Harrell, you've got a, a group that has produced a ton of sacks um, 50 plus tackles for losses. And, and they're very well regarded by, you know, folks like pro football focus and all of that. So I think I'm going to be interested to see how they handle that, that, uh, four man edge rotation that Michigan likes to put at them. And also, um, looking just at the linebacking core, Michael Barrett has been a phenomenon along with junior Colson. So their ability to kind of, take double teams off of that Michigan defensive line and kind of put pressure should it'll be interesting to see how well the offensive line of Alabama can handle. And certainly early on in the season, I'd be even more worried because of all the sacks they were allowing. Um, We saw to the credit of Tommy Reese, how they've kind of adapted that offense, allowed Jalen Milrow to run around a little bit more and, and just watch night and day, watch him transform into from a quarterback where we weren't even sure if he was the right quarterback for Alabama to a presumptive, you know, maybe next year we'll be talking about it for the Heisman. At the same time, this is a, a really strong defense. And not to say Georgia wasn't strong, but to see how they, they, they adapt to it and whether or not that offensive line can keep those, those Michigan guys out of that backfield would be a big question for me because getting that kind of disruption could potentially really – be a deciding factor in what I expect to be a close and ugly game. I think it's a great point. You know, obviously I think it's very easy on my end to, to put the onus on Michigan to block Alabama, but it is going to be a huge deal for Alabama to have to block Michigan. And you look at Alabama over the course of the season in their games against elite fronts, they have struggled to run the ball against Texas, right? They didn't have a rusher go over 45 yards against Georgia. They were under four yards per carry as well. They've even had their moments against, uh, you know, like Auburn. Auburn did a really good job containing them. And so Michigan is, like, rush-wise, I'd say that uh, that Michigan is probably half a step behind where Texas is right now. They're about where Georgia is right now. But the combo of both 
stopping the run and getting after the passer. They might be the best of all three. I, I mean, this might be a different level. And, you know, th- this isn't one of my questions, but I am curious for your perspective. How do you think that they're going to handle a true dual threat quarterback who can get outside like that? Because they really don't face anybody like that playing in the Big Ten. Yeah, that's the big, again, that goes to the ultimate question. When we're getting these 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 teams outside of their comfort zones, outside of their conferences, uh, particularly the Big Ten where it seems to be, and we've talked about this before, when Ohio State and Michigan get ready to play each other, they get ready for a game where they're just going to wrestle each other to the ground and kind of battle for every inch. Seeing a very fresh you know, offense, especially the, the Jalen Milrow-led offense by Alabama, it'll be interesting to see how well they can get around the edge, how well they can kind of contain him as a runner. I think they have the raw talent to do it. I, just to, I mean, because you get cautious. Just because they haven't run into it yet doesn't mean they can't handle it. And talent, you know, pound for pound, player for player, I think the defensive front seven of, of Michigan is – equal to or perhaps even better than Alabama in some regards, at least in terms of of getting penetration, containing them. Now, I'm not saying Alabama can't do it, but I'm saying it's going to be a group that has the capability to do it, especially if they scheme properly for it. And that therein lies the other thing. The fact is you've got a very talented set of coaches on that side of the ball who can perhaps plan around that. And it'll be very interesting to see how some of these matchups play out. I, it's interesting, too, because you could foresee – I love this matchup because you could foresee both things happening. You could see Alabama figuring out a way to just exploit the fact that Michigan has not really dealt with a running quarterback, but at the same time, um, I could at the same I could see them creating enough pressure that Milrow doesn't have enough time to really. I mean, there might be plays where he can make plays on his feet, but you don't want him to make plays on his feet all the time. I could see them creating enough pressure to disrupt his rhythm and get to him enough where Alabama gets in an awkward position and can't take advantage of, of, of opening up a passing attack. And it's interesting too, because I'm not sure how well, uh, cause we've been talking so much about Jalen Milrow, Rodell Williams. I don't know if he's necessarily, he's a solid running back. He isn't necessarily some of the greatest Alabama running backs that we've seen in recent years, but he has a potential. If they can contain him too, that would also put perhaps too much on Jalen Milrow's shoulders. So I'm, it's a totality of that front seven to create a contained running game for Alabama that I could see being a larger problem. But it's a great question. Yeah, it's going to be one that I think defines it. Let's let's look big picture for my second question. OK, let's look at both of these matchups. Which of these four quarterbacks do you think is the most reliable and which of these quarterbacks do you think uh, will be the most uh, consistent, especially in high leverage situations. So we've got Quinn Ewers at Texas. We've got, uh, of course, J.J. McCarthy at Michigan. We've got Michael Penix Jr., the Heisman finalist at Washington. And we've got Jalen Milrow, who also was a top 10 finalist, by the way, at, uh, at, at Alabama. So four very different types of quarterbacks, four quarterbacks who yes. I think all have the potential to have long NFL careers. Uh, Four quarterbacks who, I I mean, look, uh, Penix is gone after this year. That's a lock. McCarthy uh, has the ability to come back. Ewers, we're hearing, is likely to come back. Uh, Milrow will be back. So, you know, a couple of guys who could define also the 2024 Heisman race, too, if some things break the right way. Which four of these quarterbacks are you riding with? 
Boy, that is such a great question because if we're talking about playmaking ability, the ability, because all four of them certainly have flashes. Some are flashier than others. If I'm expecting a player to make a career moment and have one that that their team will, their fans will remember forever, I'm going to lean towards a Jalen Milrow or a Michael Penix Jr. However, if I'm looking for more consistency, I, I or at least an overall kind of prototypical quarterback, I tend towards obviously Ewers and McCarthy. But in terms of consistency, and this is wherein I'm kind of looking at just the overall past games and. I don't know. J.J. McCarthy has been able to control errors so well. Like there aren't, he doesn't give up the ball that much. And while he doesn't necessarily have, and it's so funny, comparing them to the other three at the same time, I would say those other three have, at least from what we've seen this season, a lot more potential upside. They've done, they've had some games where I, I you know, they balled out more, however you want to phrase it. But J.J. McCarthy's consistency, and, and maybe that is it's complimentary football, however you want to put it. He's just careful enough. And if I'm looking at a consistent quarterback who's going to make, who's less likely, at least from what we've seen, to disrupt the team's plan, it would be J.J. McCarthy. And that's perhaps the improvement. Because last year against TCU, had a really bad game. And I think maybe that's what he was improving on in the offseason. Why have you seen such a more consistent quarterback in this season heading into this playoff game? I mean, there's so much stuff loaded into this this Michigan team heading into this third third try at the Apple. But... Um, not to get too ahead of it, I, I guess I'm going with Jay. And I'm surprised because when you ask the question quickly, my brain went, I went through all four and I'm like, I think I kind of like JJ McCarthy the most in terms of just consistency, which is such an unsexy thing to say. But perhaps that's what you need with the type of, of especially with the type of team Michigan is and the way they play their games. So I would have J.J. McCarthy fourth on my list out of this group. And the re- a couple of reasons that I say that, right? So you look back at the playoff game last year, like you said, that was the first time all season he was asked to make plays and he made plays for both teams. And in a lot of ways, J.J. McCarthy's struggles and issues are the reason that Michigan did not win their playoff game in the Fiesta Bowl. The other thing that I'll say is that you look at a game like Penn State, when it is money time, they are taking the ball immediately out of his hands. They do not trust him to make big plays for them. I look at these other guys, right? Uh, obviously, like you said, you have the boom and bust potential of Jalen Milrow. If you said, if you ask which of these four players has the highest ceiling, it's probably Jalen Milrow, just because of everything he's able to do. And look, I expect that uh, in a year or two, we might be talking about this guy as the Heisman Trophy winner, because what he does when he's able to do it consistently is insane. He he makes fourth and 31 type plays. He also misses three-yard out routes, right? That, that's a piece of his game that he needs to get better at. I don't think this will come as a huge surprise to anybody who listens to this program. I'm going with Michael Penix. I think that when we talk about Michael Penix, who, by the way, will have a, a month to get fully healthy and fully right, we just underestimate so much what he provides in those leverage moments. You see every big game this season. I, 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 the the Pac-12 title game is a great example. When they needed to get first downs, when they needed to make plays, there was one guy who they were having do it, and that's Michael Penix Jr. They trusted him to make every throw. The, the two-play drive against Oregon in the first matchup is still, to me, 
the best drive that any individual player had all season long. And I don't even think it's that close to go two plays for a touchdown. And the other part of it, too, is you look at Dan Lanning, of course, being afraid and trying to take advantage of a situation and trying to keep the ball out of his hands. That's why I don't think there's a player in college football who opposing coaches respect more in those moments than Michael Penix Jr. And you talk about the consistency piece, too. Uh, Quinny was again. His highs have been very high. His lows have been kind of middling. Uh, J.J. McCarthy, his highs haven't been very high, but his consistency is pretty pretty good. Uh, Jalen Milrow, super high, super low for Jalen Milrow. I think that Michael Penix Jr. has been at his floor an 80th percentile quarterback and at his ceiling a 99th percentile quarterback. He is a really, really good, really big-time player. And I think that when you look at his overall impact when you look at his overall production to me he is just functioning right now on a different level than those other three guys and when you add that with the idea that he's going to get a month to get healthy and to prepare and that ryan grubb their offensive coordinator is going to have a month to cook up some stuff that's scary hours for me you know it's you've pointed out something i think accurate and that is Michael Penix Jr. is going to make or break Washington completely. It's all more so than any of these four teams. He's the reason why Washington will have any shot to to not only obviously win the semifinal, but have a shot at the national championship. And I think with McCarthy, maybe that's it. I'm like, and this is my own, maybe it's because you know, I'm a lawyer by trade and all this stuff. I tend to be a little more careful, cautious, conservative in, 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 in risk-taking and I'm like, you know, I kind of want the guy who's been the most consistent. I know he does not have nearly the highs of the other three, but he also, you know, steady. I'm not going to, we're not doing the, the whole, you know, the McCord, Accord thing or anything like that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quite going that far, but I mean, you know, he's, and, and I'm very curious to see how it is, but I could see how, I love how diametrically opposed we are and how I'm more like, <laughs> I don't want to take the risk. I'll just go with him. I'll have the safe bet. Reminds me of that King of the Hill. Where he has, uh, where he has, I forgot who throw the ball like in the in the for the, the scholarship, but he totally misses. That'll be me. That'll totally be me. <laughs> I'm going to be Hank Hill on this. And I'm going to go with the safe bet. Well, the thing is, right? <laughs> the thing is, it's great to to have the safe bet. It's great to have the low liability case uh, until you have to try it and you don't know what's going to happen there. And so you get it in front of a jury. Sometimes it doesn't go the same way. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I can't really do this analogy very well. But the point is. I think that with J.J. McCarthy, the fact that he's not been asked to do too much is a bug, not a feature. And I think that, you know, we see against Ohio State, they obviously really use him in the running game. They don't use him as a passer. They don't trust him as a passer. I I just have a hard time seeing that he's going to be able to be a difference, especially when he's going to be under more pressure, uh, both from a you know from a mental perspective and also from a physical perspective than any time really in his entire career. So with that said, let's move on. Uh, what's your number two question? Well, you know, another question that kind of this leads into, and one of the ones I had was, how do you think the the Wolverines passing offense can make inroads against what is a strong Alabama secondary? It's a great question. I, I think this is also a defining question because for all the for all of what I just said about J.J. McCarthy, right? He doesn't have Romo Dunce. He doesn't have Adonai Mitchell, right? He, he doesn't have that kind of player. Now, what they do have are a great number of consistent players. Roman Wilson, really, really good player for them. 
And they've been able to keep the game moving by, at times, making the game easy for J.J. McCarthy, right? And so I think a big piece of this is going to be they're going to have to take to the air early. They're going to have to spread the field out early with their receivers. Uh, you know, Cornelius Johnson, another great player in that Michigan uh, on that Michigan side of the field, somebody who I think has a little bit more of an explosive component to him. For me, I would love to see them take a shot early in the game. I, I think that would be something that could potentially change the game if they say, you know, Roman Wilson, do a double move on the third play of the game and and get open. You know, try to try to uh, take the top off of this defense in a lot of ways. You know, you look at their receivers. I mean, only one player has a reception this year longer than 50 yards, and it's their tight end, Colson Loveland. A great player, but not a burner necessarily. And so I'd love them to, to prove to Alabama, we are not afraid of your secondary, which, by the way, might be the best unit on the field in this game. This is a really good secondary, uh, obviously led by Kool-Aid McKinstry, some really good safety play. But you have to show that you're not scared because it changes the way that you play the game. Then if you're Alabama, if they hit on this early shot, I think that Alabama can't stack the box. They have to try to cover the run with only seven guys, not with eight or nine potentially. So that would be my goal is if I'm Sharon Moore, if I'm Jim Harbaugh, I am trying to think up and work up a play in practice that gets JJ McCarthy maybe out of the pocket and going downfield very, very early on. I think it could change the geometry of the whole game. What about you? You know, kind of building on that, I'm wondering if, and, and you touched on a little bit, Colston Loveland is an excellent tight end, and, and so is A.J. Barner. I am wondering if they're going to try and work in the tight ends a little bit more as receivers. Because certainly, if we're looking at what worked against Alabama, that's how Texas, I mean, when Texas beat Alabama, Jadavion Sanders did an excellent, he, had, he led the team with 114 yards. So, and I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm sure Alabama noted that. Uh, and they know exactly who's coming on the Wolverine side of the ball. But... With, as you said, I mean, Alabama's uh, quarterbacks, Kool-Aid, McKinstry, and uh, Terry and Arnold, and they've got some great safeties with Caleb Downs and Malachi Moore, Jalen uh, Key. I, I think the idea of, of setting up a mismatch would be perhaps you know, doing some shorter passes to these tight ends and taking advantage of them because they, they have the athleticism. Um, Loveland, as we've talked about, I mean, over the season, you know, in the second half of the season, he's been able to take off. Um, and that would help spread the ball out a little bit more and, and, um, and try and avoid the, the talent level that is in the, uh, the quarterbacks for Alabama. I'm curious to see if that works. Um, again, as I said, it's hard to, it's hard to think that uh, that isn't something that Saban and company have noticed um, with what went wrong in the Texas game and, and corrected for and are quite acutely aware of those two gentlemen um, with the Wolverines, but I'll be interested to see that. And, you know, the more you create that variety, the more potential mismatch or open plays you can get in the backfield. I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, because certainly as we've been talking about the, uh, the, the quality of that Alabama line is getting around it is going to be an interesting question. And, and they have the talent, but again, that Michigan offense and it kind of boils down to it too, is designed to win ugly, not necessarily win big. Um, in this kind of game. No, and, and to jump off of that uh, real quick, I mean, 
with Georgia in that matchup. They played one of the best tight end combos in the nation, and Brock Bowers wasn't fully healthy for that game. It is relevant, but five catches, 53 yards for Brock Bowers in that game, one catch, four yards for Oscar Delp, who had been a big-time player for them heading into that matchup as well. So Alabama's definitely adjusted a little bit to try and uh, take away that middle of the field. They have the athleticism to cover you at linebacker, but I agree. I think it's a good idea to try to get guys going in the middle of the field. Let's move to the other game, and I've got some questions there. And let's do that next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. So heading down to New Orleans, let's take a quick look at the Sugar Bowl. Obviously, we've got a, another great matchup, and I wonder how much it sometimes gets overshadowed with the Rose Bowl. We've got an excellent matchup with Washington and Texas. Shehan, I'd love to hear your first thought about this matchup. Yeah, so great, great matchup. Uh, I've said before, I think that this might be the national championship game. I think that these might be the two best teams in the playoff. Uh, we can get into that maybe a little later. But my first question on this game is... How transferable is what Washington did against Oregon to what they're going to do against Texas? And what I mean is this. Oregon, I think it's fair to say, is a more complete team than Washington this year. But Washington was able to muddy up the running game. They were able to protect Michael Penix Jr. well. They were able to have plays where they got behind the defense. And I think a lot of those things are going to be equally as important against Texas. So. How transferable do you think that Washington's success against Oregon is to Texas? That is a great question. And the thing that is making it so difficult is how Washington's strength has has not been on as as clear on paper. Uh, And and that's why we play the games, et cetera, et cetera. But we all went into that Oregon game thinking Washington was just going to get hammered by an Oregon team that looked strong. So they have this, this X factor, this capability to adapt to their opponent. Because honestly, on paper, once again, I look at this Texas program and I'm like, how's Washington going to stop them? Um, and we, we can get into the nuances of that in a, in a bit. So I, I feel like my doubting Thomas nature, my, my hesitancy to, to buy into Penix, as we were just talking about with which quarterback we think is the best um, of these four, uh, at least in terms of who we think is going to make the, the one we'd want to bet on. Um, I, I think they this is this is a charm team, and I hate that's such an unscientific unscientific methodology. But that's that's what makes sports so exciting. I mean, you could argue TCU was a charm team until it, it the warranty ran out. Uh, it, as it turns out, in the uh, in twenty twenty four or twenty twenty three, they didn't know that. But um, I think they have the capability to do it. They certainly have talent across the board, but it's going to be an offensive battle. I. I don't think anyone would expect that. I mean, other than that Arizona State game, I don't think anyone really expects Washington to be able to, to slow down any of these three other teams. But I think they have the capability to keep up with Texas. And if they're going to win, it's going to be a shootout kind of adventure. Um, falling completely on the back of, of Michael Penix. And I, after seeing that Oregon game, after seeing the Pac-12 title game, yeah, I, I believe they're capable of doing it. I just, I'm very, though, careful and hesitant to wonder, is that magic going to run out? Um, but 
until it does, I guess, yeah, no, I think they have the capability to do it. I think they could carry it over. Um, and we're going to find out very quick if Texas defense just grills them immediately and if they have a really slow start, they could get a little... And again, that, that's, that's not taking into account the fact that you have a quarterback like, like Michael Penix Jr. who can rally the troops, who can be a leader. Um, but Texas has got their own leader and Texas has that ability to, to keep up with them. So I think they can. Um, but, and I think, I wonder if, and is this the first, I wonder if we're seeing a little bit more of that, but this is the first time, I don't know if we've ever had this before where the, the so-called higher seed, um, Michigan and Washington may have the least amount of, I mean, this is the first time where I think more, I sense of an evenness where more people are expecting the other teams to be the victor in those matchups. Um, and I can't say the last time I, I remember that for both of the semifinal games, but yeah, certainly they could. That was a really long-winded thing because it's a very, it's kind of a very, uh, it's one of those questions of just, of, of as I said, we're, we're bringing in like the the, uh, the 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 sacrificial goats, the things that the the mystic the mysticalness of college football and whether or not a team can step up or not. Yeah, it's it's a tough question. So when I look at transferability between the Oregon team and the Texas team, obviously. Great quarterback play, great receiver play, dynamic rushers, uh, very physical up front. I do think that where things differ a little bit is I think that Texas is a little better at receiver, I would say. I think that Texas is a little better against the run, but I also think that Oregon is a little better against the pass. So I do think that... uh, the two parts of this that are going to be different from a Washington perspective are Dylan Johnson in both games against Oregon had over a hundred yards rushing. I don't know if that's going to be able to happen against this Texas team. This is a really good Texas team up front uh, and especially on the interior offensive line. Now I expect them to scheme around it. Well, I, I think we'll see a lot of Jalen McMillan in the short passing game for Michael Penix in Washington. And I think that's going to work decently well. Uh, But the one piece that I do like about it from Washington's perspective is I don't think that Texas is as good consistently in the secondary as Oregon is. And so I think that there's more explosive opportunities for Washington in this game. Now, from a game script perspective, is that a good thing, right? You're going to, I think, get off the field pretty quickly uh, in a lot of cases if, if Washington's able to hit on some big plays. Uh, and the other part of this too, and you know, this is kind of, I think, going to be something that decides the game, is Texas is a really bad red zone team uh, offensively. Well, Washington's been pretty good, but they haven't played a defensive line like Texas. And so which of these two teams, I, I think whether Washington can convert consistently in the red zone is going to be a huge part of whether they're able to pull what, like you said, has become an upset as a two versus three matchup. I mean, Texas is obviously favored by more than four points at this point. But like you said, also, Oregon was a nine and a half point favorite heading into that final weekend. So in terms of being transferable, I think that uh, I think talent wise, Oregon and Texas are on a comparable plane. When it comes to leverage situations, I think that Washington's performance in those situations is very comparable. We saw in the one high leverage game that Texas played this year against Oklahoma, they struggled. And I think that the fact that Washington has had those moments is helpful. I, I The thing that is not transferable is definitely what's going to happen running the ball. I, I'm very concerned about that. 
Shehan, my next question would be, and it kind of goes build on what you were we were just talking about here. Does Washington have any answer for Tavandre Sweat and Brian Murphy the second? Ooh, man. Uh I don't just Or do they just pray? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's I feel like I wrote in my own notes, I'm like Tavandre Sweat and Brian Murphy versus everybody. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I don't wanna say that the answer is just no. Uh I think that what I'll say instead is I think their answer will be to get away from them, <laughs> that it will be to not challenge the middle of the field. If I'm Ryan Grubb, I'm going out there and I am taking Michael Penix out of the pocket early in the game. I'm, I'm moving the pocket early on. That's something that, uh, you know, like you said, there's going to be so many TCU comparisons to this Washington team, which I personally think, well, for a number of reasons is unfair, first of all, because TCU won a game last year, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but we saw them take Max Duggan out of the pocket a lot against Michigan, and Michigan didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, you know, they started trying to rush from different angles, and TCU brought them back the other direction. Like, they did a really good job of keeping that team on their toes. If you're Ryan Grubb, your job is to take those two guys out of this game, take Devondre Sweat and Byron Murphy out of this game. And the best way to do it is... If you're going to run the ball, I think you need to run a lot of tosses and sweeps. I, I think that uh, using the the short passing game is going to be a big part of that as well. And I will say too, like Washington is really good up front. This is not a team that's just going to get bowled over by any means. But I mean, who who is the closest comparison to to who they've played this year like again Oregon doesn't necessarily have those interior guys that's not really what they're doing they've played you know Utah with Jonah Ellis would be one that comes to mind but again he's more of an edge rusher like to have interior guys like that is rare and to have two of them is damn near unfair yeah the scary thing is that was the idea of just uh, relentlessly uh, pursuing the center was what gave Arizona State that a chance at a near upset. Um, and that was Arizona State. In all respect to the Sun Devils, they don't got those two guys on their line. And if that made it difficult for the Huskies to, to get Penix in a position where he could set himself up and, and throw those passes, it's... It, it's ominous. It's not impossible. And certainly, I think you've spelled out ways that uh, Washington can scheme around that. And I think that's it, ultimately. You have to accept them as as forces that cannot be challenged, well, perhaps challenged, but that are going to be inevitable. So you're going to have to work around it. That's a great point. What's your next question? Yeah, I, I will say I'm right now I'm on PFF just glancing at defensive interior players. So Texas has number one, Tavondre Sweat, number two, Byron Murphy. I'm scrolling to try to find the first Pac-12 interior player who they've played. And I'm I'm down to the top. Oh, number 30, uh, who, by the way, plays for Washington. So that's not necessarily going to help them a whole lot. Uh, yeah, you have to go down. <laughs> you have to go down to number 44, Brandon Dorless from Oregon, a good player who is nothing like 
<laughs> the kind of guys that they're going to be playing they this upcoming singular week. talents and they're on the same team it's, it's just it's not, not fair, fair. It's um, not, but it's I, great uh, it's great if you're a longhorns fan uh, it is great if you're a longhorns fan i think that uh kaylin DeBoer should uh should file an appeal to get well actually no i, I was going to say to get rid of the the covid year so tavondre sweat has to leave i guess that would cost him michael Penix jr so maybe that's not actually something that they want to be doing <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to take things to the texas side of the ball now all right so like we've talked about defensively, they are as good as there is in the country. They've got an incredible front seven. Um, my question is going to be this. Do, does Texas trust their offensive line and really, really young running backs enough down to down? And we saw, right, like Oregon was able to run the ball a little bit against Washington, but Washington competes again in these high leverage situations. One of my biggest questions for Texas heading into the college football playoff was, well, Jonathan Brooks is gone. I think that with him, to me, if Jonathan Brooks is in the lineup, this is the best team in the country. They have two really good players in Jadon Blue and CJ Baxter. But how are these two running backs, along with an offensive line that's been very good, but not necessarily elite, how do they respond in these leverage situations? And the question I'd ask off of that is how does Quinn Ewers handle that if they do struggle? That's a good question. I think Texas's strength is going to be just overall balance because we, you, we touched on it earlier, but they have some good wide receivers. They have Xavier Worthy and, and Adnan Mitchell, and those two guys will allow them to somewhat open it up. And, and because I think you're right, I, I agree. Jonathan Brooks' lack of presence is a huge, is felt. And and we've seen Baxter step up. We've seen both of those running backs step up. Um, I think the balance of that offense will will give them opportunities to mix it up. They can't rely too heavily on them. Uh, I agree. Um, I think that's going to be the strength for Texas in that sense. That ability to keep it mixed up. They have just enough talent in every spot. Um, not the best players in the sport. Um, yours, you could argue again next season. You know, we can talk about that. But again. Overall, a great talent pool that can can spread it out. Because one of the things we were always concerned um, when uh, Jonathan Brooks fell, you know, and wasn't able to continue the season, what kind of what we're going to see with that, especially with the post Red River rivalry Texas we saw that was struggling um, and allowing teams in in back into the game, and with the way they finished out those last two games, or the way they finished out against. Um, at Iowa State and uh, Texas Tech, and then obviously, pardon me, and then against Oklahoma State, we've seen that they've seemed to have managed to 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 get that offense in a position to to move the ball and score. And that balance against, as we were just talking about, looking for who in the Pac-12 can even match the the defense that Texas has on the line against you know a decent line, a strong line. I think they should be capable, and they should be able to to, to keep it moving just by simply. Keeping the defense honest with the the balanced attack that they offer with the talent, because again, you know, we were just talking about the defensive line, but you know, I'm not sure if Elijah Jackson on the other side of the ball defending, you know, passes for the Huskies can can be a person who will keep them from attacking. I think they're going to attack him a lot because he hasn't been exactly what they'd hoped. So I think that ability to open up the pass is going to keep that run ability that run game for Texas. The opportunity to keep chugging against that defensive line. I think they have that ability. Yeah. So when Texas lost to Oklahoma, 
they got outrushed by 50 yards. They gave up uh, 200 yards rushing, most of them to Dylan Gabriel, right? They really used the quarterback run game. And it's some of the stuff that I've mentioned that they got to the edge, that they broke, that, you know, they broke contain. Texas didn't set the edge very well at all. And uh, Oklahoma was able to create those moments and win the game. Now, Michael Penix Jr. isn't going to be able to do that. But I do think that uh, that when you're Texas, you have to, I think, be consistent running the ball because we've seen at times this year that Texas will start and start to take control of the game. And when they hand the ball off to their running backs, it just hasn't been consistent that they're giving up leads, that they're letting teams back into games. They were very fortunate to not uh, give up that game against Houston. They were very fortunate not to give up that game against TCU. They were very fortunate to not give up that game against Kansas state. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, when they're not taking shots, uh, what's happening. And so I do think that with a month of practice, first of all, that in itself is a good thing to grow up some young players. CJ Baxter's played better over the last couple of weeks, but I don't know, even against Oklahoma State, it wasn't an elite rushing performance from them. It was really what they did uh, with the pass. And especially when I look at Washington, Washington's pretty good in the secondary. I don't think they're going to allow the easy passing game the same way that Oklahoma State did in that 49 to 21 victory for Texas. So I do think that they need to have something that they can hang their hat on, especially from a run game perspective. They need one of these players to be hot. Uh, against Oklahoma State, again, it was 13 carries for 43 yards for C.J. Baxter. It was 10 for 33 by Jaden Blue. Uh, Keelan Robinson broke off a 57-yard run. And that's been the thing with Texas all year is that even when they weren't running the ball consistently, they were running it explosively. Well, I don't think that's good enough against this Washington team. They can't just be explosive. Because if it gets into a battle of being explosive, I, I think that Washington, in a lot of ways, has the advantage in that game. So I, I, it's going to be something that I'm keeping an eye on. CJ Baxter, I think, is one of the most important players in this game. Maybe we'll talk about, on Thursday, more of the most important players in the college football playoff this year. But he's somebody who I'm going to be very much keeping an eye on. All right. So what would be your next question for this matchup? Yeah, I'm going to take it big picture again, right? So we have four teams, three of whom have not as programs won the national title since 2005, which is crazy, by the way. Alabama is the only one who's won more recently than that. For Texas, 2005. For uh, for Washington, it's 1991. For Michigan, it's 1997. And if we're talking for an out for a, a a non like an outright title, like. We have to go all the way back to 1948. That's the last time that Michigan won an outright title. I know. It's crazy. With all that said, if you are looking at one assistant coach across these two games, across these four teams, who is the most important assistant coach in these games? And also, by the way, in a potential title game. That's a good question. Uh, And it really has to do with what team... I'm going to go, because as we're sort of soaring through this, I'm going to go with Sean Moore at Michigan, only because I have a lot of confidence in the Michigan defense. And I think they can, I mean, Alabama will probably score some. I'm not saying that they're going to shut out Alabama like they did Iowa, because this is obviously a different animal altogether. But the ability to to get Michigan on the board consistently, um, again, I'm not saying they have to score 50 points, but if they can continue to score points like they've done 
in those ugly games that they had with Penn State, with Ohio State, with Iowa. I think they can keep up enough and and beat Alabama. So ultimately, how he schemes, I mean, I'm not, I'd be shocked if he decides to run it 32 times against the Crimson Tide, but you know, that will be that will be the strength there. And I think whatever of of the the coordinators out there, he would be my choice for that reason, because that it's pivotal. I, I have a lot of confidence in Michigan's defense. Therefore, whether or not they can win and continue to to play into the title game um, will, I think, fall on his shoulders. No, I think that that's a great answer. I think in a lot of ways that's just like objectively the correct answer is Sharon Moore, both from the perspective of offensive coordinating and coming up with a plan and also from the perspective of, again, getting his offensive line ready to meet the moment. Uh, this is a different kind of moment than it's been the past couple of years. And I think that Sharon Moore has a lot on his shoulders heading into this game, but at least he won't have to, uh, he won't have to be the head coach in addition to being offensive line coach and offensive coordinator. This <laughs> time. That's going to help him out a little bit. I'm going to go though. I- I'm going to go with uh, Texas defensive coordinator, Pete Kwiatkowski. And I think that he is, uh, I mean, he made a great case for himself to win the Broyles award as the best assistant in college football this year. What he has built at Texas is outstanding and he's somebody who handles and calls the defense he also coaches defensive backs and safeties so it's not just what he's going to coordinate against washington i think it's also getting his unit ready for this game this is going to be a safety driven game on both sides of the field i think in a lot of ways and uh you know one thing to mention by the way is pete kutkowski was hired away from washington from uh at the time jimmy lake staff he was a chris peterson staffer before that i don't know if that means that he has much familiarity with uh with washington's personnel it's been a couple years at this point but he does know a little bit about uh, what they do there but this is a texas secondary that again has had their moments uh you know jaday baron at nickelback one of the best players in the country in my opinion they also are not elite there the way that they are in the front seven they don't have you know Jalen Catalan was a player at safety who they thought would come in he ended up uh, transferring once again because he didn't really get the touches that he wanted um they have a walk on playing back there Michael Taff who's been awesome uh, an Austin Texas legend he played for Westlake High School and walked on at Texas but they got to be ready this is a different kind of challenge and the funny thing is and, and I can say this as somebody who's covered the Big 12 for a long time uh People expect that when you play in the Big 12, you're having to deal with a lot of passing offenses and downfield attacks. Big 12 is a running league right now, man. Like, this is not a league where you're playing Michael Penix's all that often and where you're playing Romo Dunze's all that often. So I think that him creating a plan that gets back to maybe some of what he's done well over the years, and then on top of that, getting his safeties ready for the moment that's why I think that Pete Kwiatkowski is the guy to watch. That's a great call. And I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing how he's going. He brought up, by the way, what we've been talking about, which is once you get these teams out of their conferences, let's see how they do. Of course, we, we did see how Texas did against Alabama, but we'll set that one aside. Pretty good, pretty um, good. We'll see how they do against the Pac-12 team this time. Um, goodness. Well, I think that's a good segue. We'll take a, We'll come right back and let's talk about one last question as we get ready to wrap up the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.
So as we kind of get ready to wrap up, I have one kind of final question, which kind of goes to a bigger picture question, dragging in maybe some of the, the discussion of the past few weeks. And that is over whether these are the best teams in the semifinals. And more or less, it kind of boils down to a couple of days before the two semis. On December 30th, we're going to get the Orange Bowl, which is by far the most exciting non-semifinal game out there, only because we have an undefeated Florida State team scoring off against a highly ranked Georgia team that only recently lost a close one to the Alabama team in the four-team playoff. How big of a deal would it be if Florida State were to do that upset only a couple of days ahead of the semifinals? So to start things off, it would be big. It definitely would be big no matter what. I do think it will matter a little bit who's sitting out of that game, right? If Brock Bowers isn't playing, uh, we expect Carson Beck probably to come back and play, but that's obviously a relevant one. But I think even bigger than that is if this Florida State team looks like they can just hang with what Georgia brings to the table. And if they do, if they handle themselves up front, if they give Georgia's uh, offense a lot of issues, I mean, this, is, this could turn into a situation for, for uh, the college football playoff committee. One of the things that the college football playoff committee was created to deal with is to destroy the idea of illegitimate national champions. The idea that somebody could play in the national championship game and then people decide, no, that wasn't really the national champion. That, it was created to do that. And they have now created a situation where if Florida State beats Georgia, if they beat them convincingly, if Tate Rodemaker has a good game, that you're kind of throwing the whole system into question. So again, it's a good thing that we're getting the 12 team next year, but it absolutely would be a big deal if Florida State was able to pull off that game. And like we talked about, uh, depending on the nature of the game, depending on who plays, by the way, Florida State's going to be without some players too in, in the Orange Bowl as well. I think that it was Johnny Wilson who's already officially declared for the NFL draft. So if they're able to pull off a victory, man, it's it could be a really, really big deal. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't even know if it would necessarily have to be like a dominating, convincing win because Alabama had a close game with Georgia. So that would just by nature, if they can beat Georgia, and that's an if, and there's a lot of factors, as we said, with which players are going to be available, et cetera. But suddenly it really does call into question Alabama's inclusion in the uh, in the final four. Um, and only a couple of days before. I think that's going to be the most interesting factor. The noise it would create heading into New Year's Eve, heading into New Year's Day, because that's all people are going to talk about. Um, while wow, Florida State wasn't included and they managed to beat the team. And quite frankly, even if Georgia isn't to full strength with the level of players who are in the game, they're still going to harp on it. And it's still going to be one of those moments that um, add to the crisis that I think the College Football Playoff Committee has been enduring uh, these past couple of weeks. And it would happen again at the worst possible time, just a few days before the semifinals, which is the 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 writing that's going to be done, the the noises that are going to be made, uh, will be absolutely glorious. Especially if Florida State were to win, and then we watch Alabama fall to Georgia, pardon me, Alabama uh, beat Michigan and uh, uh, Washington fall to Texas. My goodness, all the different all the different hand wringing that's going to occur will be absolutely a delight. Um, 
But well, that's a big question. Let big me, if. And let me add this though. What mm-hmm. if Florida State beats Georgia? And it's because Tate Rodemaker throws for 450 yards. What if it turns out that they had equally good, if not a better quarterback sitting on their bench and then got disincluded from the playoff because of the quarterback position? That would be that would be spectacular. You know, it kind of goes back to what I've said. If Florida State wins this game against Georgia, they should absolutely just claim a national championship. I'm sure there will be organizations that support them in that. And it would just be a protest vote. I mean, because that's the other thing. I think it's dicey. When you get people throwing a so-called protest vote in against the system, it makes it neat. But I always, especially when it has to do with journalists, I think it's inserting themselves into the story a bit too much. But I think if they can win out, and if especially if they win out convincingly, then you're absolutely right. I think, first of all, it would be a statement. But second of all, I think Florida State should claim that title because at that point, you know, the, the college football playoff committee will at that point have been completely undercut and it, until they have a 12-team playoff, perhaps. Um, I think by all means, yes, I think they should claim the title if they do that and, and do so proudly um, because Florida State will have earned it. But we'll see. Lot, lots of football to be played. And, um, and who knows? We might, we might see an absolute dominating performance in the semifinals and final where one team will just be like, okay, yeah, everyone will suddenly forget. So we'll see how long people's memories stick by if such a situation presents itself. Well, I think that'll be all, of a, that'll be all for us here at the College Football Survivors Show. Thanks to all of you who listen. We appreciate the time you take to enjoy the conversations that Shehan and I have. It is always a pleasure to uh, to to discuss college football. Want to thank our producer Joey Alberti. Um, be sure if you get a chance to like, rate, and subscribe our show wherever you get our podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at CFB Survivor Show. See us there. You know, write to us there. Vote in our polls. We always enjoy that. I'm Bob Akhairi. He's Jayhan Jayaraja. You can find him on CBSSports.com. Thanks for listening. The College Football Survivor Show where playoff survival is always on the line.